Welcome, Welcome to the Bacon Game Sports Box. Your source for the latest on baseball, football, and whatever else he feels like talking about. Get ready. Here is your host, Jesse. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Jesse, back here with another Bacon Games Fantasy Sports Podcast. I want to go over some news items that I didn't cover before the Super Bowl and some things you might have missed right after the Super Bowl. Uh, So let's jump into it real quick. All right. All right, the first thing I want to talk about is Bill O'Brien being promoted to the GM position and also staying as the coach of the Texans. Uh, This is a pretty informal decision because he was basically acting as the GM last year, but I still think this is a bad move. Putting aside, even putting aside my intense dislike of Bill O'Brien, uh, he's, you know, a, a fine a fine coach and all that, uh, who makes questionable calls, but you could do way worse than him uh, at the head coach position. Yet, there's a reason why the head coach and the GM are two very separate positions. The GM has so much on his plate in terms of personnel, and so does the coach each week. It just puts immense stress on both positions. I can't imagine doing both. Uh, nor can anyone really do it that I've seen in my entire lifeline besides uh, Bill Belichick. The last one I can remember was Chip Kelly, and we all know how that went down. <clears throat> and if you're thinking of acting a little hyperbolically, and nobody is like Chip Kelly, he's going to overhaul the roster like Chip Kelly did, uh, trading away you know assets uh, to make a crazy specialized team. You just have to look at what Bill O'Brien did last year. He traded away a lot of draft capital in order to win now with Kenny Stills and Laramie Tunsil. And now his team stuck a little bit. I don't think a GM who wasn't a coach would make the same kind of decision that Bill O'Brien made last year. It seemed like a win now move, uh, and a excuse me, and a move to keep his job. Uh, I think the long term health of the franchise is in question with a head coach GM uh, like Bill O'Brien. Much in the same way the Eagles were on left on life support after Chip, Chip Kelly left. Although they did eventually turn around, but that's because Harry Roseman's uh, a really good GM, I think. Some more important items in the way of coaching changes in the NFL, and we're going to the Patriots. Their offensive line coach, Dante Sarnecchia, retired, uh, which I think is pretty fucking huge. It's it's very hard to quantify offensive line play over the years, but the Pats have had consistently been at the top of the class at O-line play during the Bill Belichick era. With the fracturing of the triumvirate of Belichick, Kraft, and Brady, which I believe started when Jimmy G was forced out in 2018, the retiring early offensive line coach... Uh, and the questions about Brady's future, the fact that they lost in the first round of the playoffs, in the goddamn wildcard round, which is normally reserved for the proletariat, just all points to the continuing cracking of the great juggernaut of our age. Uh, so while this retirement may have flown under the radar, I think it's important to note all of the cracks in the Patriots system, starting back in 2018 and now moving on to with their offensive line coach retiring. Uh, also, while we're on the subject of Jimmy G, which we kind of are, uh, the Pats... <laughs> turned one uh, second-round pick, which they got for Jimmy G, uh, in 10 easy steps into the following players. I'm not going to go through all the steps and all the different trades they make, but they made at least 10 different trades to get the following players. Duke Dawson, he was on the IR when he was a rookie, and he was traded away to the Broncos with a second-round pick for a sixth-round pick to the Patriots. So they got a sixth-round pick out of him. They drafted linebacker Christian Sam, who was cut in 2019. They traded for Joe Juwan Williams, who hasn't really played much. Damien Williams, or Damien Harris, excuse me, who I'm sure you've heard of because he was on fantasy player radars during the season, but he hasn't been that much of a contributor this year. Uh, they also got Yadni Kajus, uh, who has surgery and hasn't played yet, and they got quarterback Jarrett Stidham, who has thrown a pick on four interceptions so far. So turning that second round pick into like five different players doesn't seem to have 
behoove the Patriots too much. Um, I just thought it was interesting to note where the Jimmy G pick actually ended up. Because this is, this is again, it's important to note that Dante Skarnicki has retired and the Patriots offensive line has been good for Wally while he was there. And now it might not be. But the real thing to note is that this is the continual track, uh, cracking of the great triumvirate of our age. Um, and the picks that they got for Jimmy G haven't turned out to be very good yet. But, you know, keep an eye on those guys. You can't really judge rookie players until they're close to their second contract, I would think. Um, yeah. I, I also neglected to mention that the Patriots have a fourth rounder this week. Um, just getting into how crazy this Jimmy G uh, draft pick. I think it was a 40th overall pick back in 2017 or 2018, whenever they uh, received the pick. But they also... Besides all those players, have a fourth-round pick from the Bears this year. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the Sterling Marte trade. If you've been listening to my Diamondbacks coverage, which has been pretty extensive this offseason, you you would know that I was definitely going to talk about this trade. Um, you know, I, I, I have obviously been more critical about the Diamondbacks, but I'm more convinced now that they want to win than I was earlier in the offseason. Uh, can they win now, though? I'm not sure, but let's dive into the trade specifics. The Diamondbacks acquired Marte from the Pirates for $250,000 in internal signing bonus uh, money and two prospects, Brendan Malone and the 33rd pick in the 2019 draft. And the last project, I'm sorry, uh, prospect, I should have phrased that differently, but the last prospect they got is Loever Pigero, Pigero, 19-year-old shortstop. Uh, I don't know much about these two prospects, and I don't think that's super important right now. I think it just makes sense for the direction the two teams are going. The Pirates barely have a payroll, and they're obviously tanking this year. So getting two prospects and uh, a 2019 high pick is is a pretty good move for them. But the, the real meat here, the real important thing, especially when we talk about fantasy, is the Diamondbacks and the fact that they have Marte now. Um, another Marte. Uh, okay. So I think that Sterling was desperately needed in a bad outfield in Arizona. Whilst they also acquired Silver Slugger Cole Calhoun this season, the, the outf- this offseason, excuse me, the outfield has been really bad. Uh, the lineup, sure, looks better with Marte in the two-hole, uh, which is where I think he'll be betting, and that's what Rotochamp uh, has him projected as, which is right behind the other Marte. Uh, while I think Sterling Marte has to be an upgrade right over Tim LaCastro or Josh Rojas, uh, he's on the wrong side of 30. He's 31 years old. Marte's only played in over 140 games once in the last four years. He played in 129, 77, and 132 the years before. Um, and I think his launch angle is on the lower side, which I think is something that most players and Sterling Marte have been trying to do over the past years. Uh, so there are some dings against him for sure, but the defense is good, which is, I think, key for a center fielder. He's in the 72nd percentile of outs above average. Um, and his advanced stance are really consistent to trending upwards uh, going into this year. So, you know, overall, I think Marte is obviously an improvement over the two guys that I mentioned before, Rojas and LaCastro, who aren't household names, aren't very good players. Uh, and Marte still in the middle of his career, maybe not the prime, but 31 is the middle of his career for sure. We see how long, you know, the other uh, ex-Pirates outfielders like McCutcheon have been playing for um, kind of get maybe a little more excited for Marte. I mean, he is going to Arizona, but... Nevertheless, I think this is an upgrade, and Marta hitting the two hole is pretty nice. He'll probably be able to steal a decent amount, too. This team is looking to win, so whatever way they can do it, and, and Marte obviously can do it with his uh, legs on the base path, they, they'll do it. So, talking about fantasy, he's obviously an upgrade. Talking about the Diamondbacks, he's an upgrade, and I think the trade was pretty good for both teams. I'm very curious to see where the Diamondbacks go this year. They have, if you were uh, reading the website and if you've seen 
what I've written about uh, going from worst to first. The Diamondbacks have done it before, and I wouldn't put it past them to do it again this year. <laughs> I don't think, at least. Yeah, obviously, every year is very different, but, you know, their team, like the White Sox and like the Reds, that I'll be keeping an eye out, trying to sneak into the playoffs somehow this year. Okay, we, we, we just talked about one fairly underwhelming trade. We've got to talk about the other uh, the other trade, I guess. <laughs> I can't believe I just called it that, but let's talk about the Mookie Betts trade. Mookie Betts and David Price. I think it's significant to talk about both of them. The trade is as follows, uh, as I'm sure you know. It's still pending, uh, as I'm recording this uh, Thursday night, it's still pending uh, medical results. I think it, there's something to do with the... Uh, there's some issue with one of the prospects' medical history or, or something along those lines. But I think the deal is basically going to be done anyway. This is just a hiccup. Uh, the Dodgers received Mookie Betts, David Price, and cash considerations. Also, David Price's 35... I think it's $35 million a year contract. Uh, and the Red Sox received Alex Verdugo from the Dodgers... Brood, Bruce, Brusar, Brusar, Gratterall from the Twins, and the Twins ended up with Kenta, uh, Kenta Maeda. Okay, so bets price to the Dodgers, the Red Sox get Verdugo, and Grat- Gratterall, and the Twins get Maeda. Okay, so this is a blockbuster. Holy fuck. I thought we would get an Arenado trade, but we got the Moogie Betts trade, which I thought was way less likely. Um, my initial impressions were the Red Sox are super losers. And I think I still hold on to that opinion a little bit. I'm trying to be less reactionary. So I, I think they lost the trade, but it's, it's maybe not like super loser status. <laughs> like on a scale of one to 10 and 10 being the worst first zero being the best, it would be like in, I think like a seven or a six. So not good overall. I, I, I'm definitely critical of the Red Sox trade and we'll get into that a little bit. Let's talk about, let's talk about the players. Uh, Alex Verdugo. Seems to be a polarizing player, but his stats are pretty promising. Obviously, nowhere near as good as the best player in baseball. Or, I'm sorry, one of the best players. One of the best hitters uh, in, in baseball right now. Uh, Bruce Star. Bruce Star. I am so bad at names. Holy shit. I'm just going to call him Gatorade. Gatorade. Buster Gatorade. That's his new name. Uh, Gatorade. Uh, he's 21 years old pitching prospect. Uh, he was ranked 53rd in baseball's top 100 prospects at MLB.com, which is pretty good for the farm system. Uh, I think that the Red Sox obviously need to, to revamp their farm. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, but if you combine both those players, you, you obviously don't get anywhere close to a Mookie Betts this year. Uh, and Price, obviously. Betts and Price. I, you need to combine them both because they're both assets. Uh, Price is a declining asset for sure, and Betts is an ascending one. I guess if, if assets can really do that like baseball players, but yeah, Price is obviously, uh, his, with his contract is, is, is not a good asset, but he's still fine. He needs to be mentioned in this because Betts and Price together would have a way better season than both of these players this year. And I'm not sure that either of these players are going to be able to compete even in the next five years with what Betts and Price are going to lay down in LA if they stay in LA. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the justifications for the trade. Um, I was reading on Ken Rosenthal's Twitter, uh, that he noted some rival executives, in quotation marks, whatever the fuck that means, made some points. And I would agree that they're okay points. L- let's get into them. Uh, their arguments basically amount to the Red Sox are getting two young, talented players to replace the farm, which is ranked 30th by Bleacher Report. I, I looked that up. Um, and their best prospect, per MLB.com, was the 85th best prospect, who is still in double-A ball and likely won't be ready until 2022. The second thing they mention is that getting under the luxury tax line, which is important for franchises and owners, I guess. We'll talk about that in my rebuttal of these points. Uh, the third thing is that they will have flexibility um, in in their payroll in the future to the tune of the 
to the tune to the amount of 40 to 50 million dollars. The best part of that argument um, is getting prospects to help the farm system, I think, which by all accounts is bad. But I mean, letting a young player, young player, 27, middle of his career, letting a young player like Mookie Betts go just doesn't. <laughs> I understand there's like the long term viability of the franchise, but. Moogie's going to be good for the next six years, probably, the next five years, unless something catastrophic happens. I don't know if these farm players, a 21-year-old, will be good by the time he's Mookie Betts' age. Or uh, Buster, or I'm sorry, uh, Alex Verdugo's 22 years old, but I'm not sure if he's ever going to be what Mookie has been to this team. And I know they'll have team control over him for um, probably five or six, or probably like four or five years. Um, and he won't, be get, he won't be getting paid that much, but it's still, it's a crazy uh, level to go down in terms of ability, right? Um, so let's, let's get into the, the rebuttals here. Let's get into the sick rebuttals I have, because I don't like any of these arguments. Um, so re- regarding the players, the first argument, uh, the players replenishing the farm, it is all well and good, and teams should do that from time to time, especially when you have one of the worst farm systems in the league. I, I agree. Um, but I think Mookie is going to be better, um, in his career than these guys, and this is not even, this is not even touching the, the price issue, and I, I know... The David Price issue is an issue of Price, lol, because his contract is so high, and that's why they wanted to dump him to get under the luxury tax. Um, but the Red Sox are in a position to make another run in the playoffs. I they have a good lineup even without Mookie with Devers and JD Martinez, um, and if Benintendi can rebound, they have good pitching. Sale can rebound. I'm I'm pretty confident in Sale. I think this year they they have a good roster. Holding on to Mookie isn't like he's their only good player, like the Los Angeles Angels of LA, Anaheim, whatever their name is now. You know, it's not like a Trout situation where it's just like Trout and declining Pujols. This is this was a good team who could have had J.D. Martinez and Mookie Betts uh, next to each other in the lineup for, or, or close to each other in the lineup for years to come, right? It, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, personally, to replenish the form with these kind of guys. Um, let's talk about the luxury tax. Getting onto the luxury taxes. Cool. I mean, the criticism is right. They will get under it by trading away price, even if they have to give up some kind of money. But I, I feel like I have to say this because I guess ownership or MLB ownership doesn't understand or someone doesn't understand. The fans seem to understand, but there's like no actual penalty <laughs> besides being taxed more for spending more. I, there's no limit. You can spend what you want. And we'll get into what these owners are worth, and what the franchise is worth. You can spend the money. Um, I looked at the Forbes article on the Red Sox from April in 2019. After coming off the 2018 season with high hopes, obviously, they generated $560, uh, $516 million in revenue. They had an operating cost of $84 million and a player payroll of $247 million. Um, I don't know. I can do quick, simple math. Just make that that total like three fifty. They were... Uh, the revenue there is, <laughs> um, the the profit they make is in the millions, in the hundreds of millions. They're also valued by Forbes at $3.2 billion, which is up from the $2.8 billion they were the year before, which seems like a huge spike, likely due to the success of the team, considering it was the biggest jump um, in valuation since 2015. Uh, this, this is all bearing in mind that teams' values go up and the <laughs> with, with the team being successful, right? The team's the value of the Red Sox as a brand goes up when the team does well. So trading away an asset like Betts, you know, even even if he was going to sign a thirty million dollars deal, you might be losing like anywhere from tw- uh, ten to thirty million dollars a year just 
by the brand being weakened, by the team losing more games because Mookie isn't there. I just, I, I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here, but losing an asset that was so loved by the Red Sox and so good, one of the best hitters and players in baseball, just so you can get into the luxury tax when you're making hand, like hand over fist or whatever, the amount of money that they make is crazy. And that's not even talking about, let's get into it real quick. The owners and the people, the people who own the Red Sox, um, John Henry and Tom Warner, they're both immensely wealthy. John Henry is the owner of Liverpool Football Club. He's worth two point, uh, he's worth $2.6 billion as of July 2017. Uh, the other guy, Tom Warner, is the chairman of Liverpool, is the chairman of the Sox. They, uh, I think also Warner owns like Red Sox Media or Fenway Media or whatever like that, so there's another company he owns. They're worth a, a lot of money. Um, sorry, I didn't know if I mentioned. Yeah, Tom, Tom is worth $30 million. Uh, they, they both could figure out uh, how to how to keep the Red Sox afloat with their immense uh, wealth. I, I don't think that's an issue. Giving $30 million and paying, I don't know what the luxury tax is, is it like 30, I think it's like 35% or something like that. Paying an extra, you know, $5 million on top of that for Mookie Betts' contract is, you know, absurd to me when these guys are making so much money. Um, I, I really, it really feels, I'm sure it feels like to the fans that they sacrificed to save some money. They sacrificed the team's ability to win when they were competitive last year, and I know they were in a competitive division, but it just it's very disheartening for fans. And I think overall, in terms of the health of the franchise, it was a bad move. Getting one of one of your best assets to rebuild the farm in a way that I'm not sure is even going to be that good. Pitching prospects are really tough, especially a 19-year-old player. And Verdugo is, you know, could be good. He, he could actually be very good, but I'm just, I'm just not sold in it the way I'm sold on Mookie Betts, right? I, I think that's just the issue. Betts is too valuable of a player to ever deal, I think. And I know we've had John Carlos Stanton be dealt the year after he was the MVP, but I think the Marlins were in a worse position, and it's a very different position considering they weren't competitive in the NL East, even though they did have a lot of superstars. The Red Sox are competitive, and they probably will even continue to be competitive without Mookie Betts. But, you know, if, they, if the Red Sox miss out by the playoffs by five games... Or if they aren't able to win in the playoffs, not having Mookie will reflect poorly. Enough about the Red Sox already, right? There are other teams in this trade, right? Uh, the Dodgers, let's talk about them. Um, I think they won this trade pretty easily. Um, as outlined above, the salary doesn't matter. And they did dump players in order to get under the luxury tech. So good for them, I guess. But the talent they dumped is nowhere near the talent of the combined or combined. It's not even near the combined talent of David Price and Mookie Betts. Uh, the Dodgers seem to be focused on winning, and they haven't won a title since 89, so they are trying to get it. Uh, I also, it, it's important to note that Mookie is under team control for one more year. He needs to ink a long-term deal, or it could be pretty bad for the Dodgers. Even if uh, the one-year rental they got wins them a championship, losing a generational talent in any way would be a major loss for any franchise. Getting Price, even as a, even at a salary, is probably fine, uh, or at least it's a fine replacement for Maeda, uh, especially considering Price won't have to go deep into games and he is a little bit older. But th- this isn't the important part. The important part is look at the Dodgers lineup, which is going to be Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, Justin Turner, Cody Bellinger, Max Muncy, AJ Pollock, Gavin Lux, and Will Smith. And then the pitcher. I, I, don't, I just don't know how you pitch to this lineup in the, the first five and possibly even the first six. Um, even if you're not like a Gavin Luxton, he's still, it's still a great one through five. 
and if if Pollock can stay healthy, I just remember him being a, a top free agent two years ago. I know injuries have dealt him a significant blow during his Dodgers tenure, but still, if he can even be average or average to good, this team with the lineup can break the 100-win mark for sure. Um, if I'm playing fantasy baseball, which is, I guess, what this podcast should be partially about, right? I want to grab as much of this lineup as possible, especially Pollock, because you'll get him for a lot less, and Corey Seager at their price. Seager's going to hit, like, behind Mookie and in front of Bellinger. I don't, and he's like a fine player on his own. He's still young. He still can be good, and he was good two years ago, and, and last year, I believe, too. Um, but being in, behind Mookie and in, and in front of Bellinger, like, I, can I just pencil him in for 100 runs and 100 RBIs? Like, I, I don't know. It just, it, it, it feels like, even though shortstop is pretty stacked, Corey Seager is going to be a very, very valuable uh, option for fantasy. Uh, the Twins received uh, Maeda for their promising pitching prospect. I get it. Uh, he Maeda is going to serve as an upgrade for the rotation, no doubt. His fantasy value, I think, is going up because he's going to be asked to throw more in Minnesota because they don't have as deep of a bullpen or as deep of a starting pitcher, you know, rotation as the Dodgers had. Uh, I'm probably taking Maeda around where I draft Ray, Price, um, and uh, and my, Mike Michaelis. So, like, around... He's like a. It's probably want to be like your fourth pitcher if you have good pitching. Probably be like your fourth or fifth pitcher, but but still a, a valuable player for sure. The Twins scored the second most runs uh, last year, and their lineup got better. I think <laughs> Josh Donaldson's an improvement for sure. Um, but we'll we'll see how their their breakout players do. I'm 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 a little skeptical, but nevertheless. Might is going to a good team. You know, leaving the Dodgers is bad for wins and losses, obviously, but it's good for innings pitched, and it will probably be a wash for wins and losses. So, yeah, I think think that's that's what I have to talk about this trade. Oh, I'm sorry. We we should we should talk uh, about the other deal that happened. Jock Peterson and I think Alex Wood, which I didn't realize when I was writing this, but uh, Jock Peterson and Alex Wood were traded to the Angels for Louis Rengifo. Uh, it's, a, it's a small salary dump to get the Dodgers under the uh, luxury tax with Mookie playing full-time in outfield. They don't really need Peterson, and Wood probably didn't figure into the rotation anyway, so he'd be that awkward six-starter, long reliever type guy they have. Um, but the yeah, the important part here, and it's not really so much for fantasy, although a little bit for fantasy. Jock Peterson was had 36 home runs last year. We'll, we'll get into that uh, a little bit. But I, I think this was just a nice move by the Angels exploiting the Dodgers uh, having to dump guys to get under the, I was going to say cap, but the luxury tax, which isn't really a cap. They could keep these guys. It wouldn't be a problem for billionaire owners. Um, but yeah, I mean, I th- I think that Peterson probably bat lean off. He had 36 home runs last year with a 3.3 ERA. He kills right-handed pitchers, can't hit lefties. But if he's batting, you know, in front of Rendon, Otani, Trout, and even Upton, I think it'll be very important <laughs> for fantasy this year, uh, especially in, in daily daily lineups. But uh, even though even for the Angels, I think they won this trade. I think they won, you know, besides the Dodgers getting one of the best players in baseball, the the Jock Peterson deal is is really smart for not giving up that much, I don't think. I, I like him at the top of the order. He could score over 100 runs with the league's most underrated player batting behind him and the league's best player batting behind him. This is all just good news, I think, for the Angels. Um, and we shouldn't forget that, because I feel like that's getting lost in the obvious blockbuster deal of Mookie Betts and David Price being dealt to the Dodgers. But the Angels, I think, swooped in there and, and made a nice move 
when the Dodgers were, I think, desperate to, to ditch some talent and move some salary to another team. Okay, cool. Let's move on to one of my teams. Obviously, it's not going to be a good thing. Let's talk about the Jaguars moving another game to London. Uh, I was pretty disappointed to learn that the Jaguars would be moving, or I guess playing a second home game in London. Even though I live in New Jersey and I'm a Jaguars fan, I've only been to Jacksonville one time, and that was week three of the 2018 season against the Titans, and it was one of the worst games I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, But I I really like the city, um, and I know the Jags mean a lot to people down there in Jacksonville, and I know the guys that interact with on Twitter that are diehard Jacksonville fans are, are, are pretty upset. And I know this is a very feels argument, but I'm, I'm sad to see the Jaguars move another game because this is really, like, we, we were, like, playtesting, seeing if we can get, like, a whole season over there in, uh, in Wembley and see if that looked good with all the other teams playing there. I think, like, we play eight games or, like, six games over there, but moving a second team that already plays one home game there every year guaranteed feels like more of a trial run for a team actually moving to Europe, which is bonkers to me. Um, it's, it's really bonkers, but as much as I definitely dislike this move, and I, I do for sure, um, I, I understand where the Jaguars are coming from. Um, firstly, and I'm sure it's been noted, but Shad Khan, the owner of the Jaguars, he owns Fulham FC and he put in a bid to buy Wembley Stadium, which is where all the football games are played, American football that is in 2018, but um, I didn't actually know this until researching, but I thought he actually owned this day, but he withdrew his bid back in 2018. But it just shows how vested Shad Khan is in a possible London franchise more than any other owner in the NFL. Uh, but I guess the real reason why it's good, and I, it's it's hard to say good, but I, I'm going to go ahead and use that word, uh, good for the overall health of the Jaguars franchise, is that there's a lot of money to be made um, compared to other Jaguars home games. Quoting from the Jacksonville Business Journal regarding the London game, uh, in quotes, uh, it accounts for 13% of what the team considers local revenue each year. The London market size is 10 times the size of the Jacksonville market, and the ticket revenue potential from the London game is double what the team can earn at TIAA TIAA Bankfield on a Sunday afternoon, end quote. Uh, It seems obvious why the team that's ranked consistently by Forbes in its valuation, which is the main way that teams are are evaluated, I think, through through the Forbes website, whoever does that, good for them. But it's usually evaluated in the bottom half of franchises, and it was ranked 23rd as of September 2019 coming into the 2019 season. So I I get it. London is where the money is. That's why the games are being moved there, despite their cries for keeping the Jags and Jags. TIAA Bank is never going to produce the amount of money that Wembley Stadium will ever produce. It's just not going to happen. I... And we'll get into this a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll get into my like real feelings about this business dealing in a little bit. But I totally understand why fans wouldn't want to renew season tickets after losing another game to London. But pricing has gone down by fifteen percent for the Jaguars' president, and the big games are still going to be played in Jacksonville. Like I think they promised Pittsburgh and the Bears would be played in Jacksonville still, which are two big non-conference, uh, non-divisional games that are being played in Jacksonville still. Um, but I think another concern that playing in London, it, it might hurt teams' performance. That's a concern that people might have, um, and that this this London stuff is, like, semi-cursed. Um, but according to an article from ESPN in 2017, this doesn't appear to be the case, as teams who win in London are, are generally good teams, and bad teams usually lose in London. It doesn't affect teams' performances nearly in the way that fans might think it does. Uh, from this this. I guess, quick analysis that ESPN did in 2017. It's it's worth considering, though, that no team has played twice in London in a season, and usually teams are given a bye after they play in London. 
So we'll certainly be monitoring this performance. Um, if, if anything is pretty bad after the Jaguars come back and play again after being in London, we'll, we'll see if there, there's an issue there. Um, I'm not really sure. It's entirely possible that playing twice in London will be a benefit because teams only do it once or never in a season, and some players might have never made the trip. It's entirely possible that this actually helps the Jaguars, um, which would be great for me, obviously. But, you know, thinking this this from a business perspective, and I'm not a business person. I'm, I went to school for, for history. I have a degree. I'm supposed to be a, a stupid fucking teacher, but I'm not. Um, it, it, it feels like the business move here, it just really you know, sucks, sucks the money out of Jacksonville. And, and if you're not making a move to be an international franchise or you're not moving the team anywhere else, this is going to hurt the long-term, I think, viability of the Jaguars in Jacksonville. And I know Shotgun has invested in the shipyards downtown in Jacksonville just to make the city, you know, I mean, more profit for him, whatever, but like to make the city better and worse, a, a more pleasant experience for, for Jaguars fan and for Jacksonville, the city. I know he's pretty loved down there. So it's just, it's odd to me that he wants to keep moving his aspirations to London. I don't even know if the the NFL will allow a team to move to London. But splitting like this just seems like a short-term grab in Wembley to make more money in, in Wembley because it'll, you know, more more fans there, uh, more money, more ticket revenue. But, you know, if you, if you don't have guys showing up to your your games at home in Jacksonville because they're so offended that you move the team to, to London, it just seems like you're either posturing for a complete move out of Jacksonville which would be kind of shitty. Um, I think people in Jacksonville would obviously hate that. Or you're splitting the difference here and you're going to come out with revenue not being as good because team players won't, or excuse me, fans won't be attending the home games as much as they will because there are two games in London that they're missing out on. I don't know. It's interesting. We'll see how this, this turns out. But from a business making perspective, and I'm not a businessman, I feel like splitting time like that between two stadiums just isn't, smart if you're trying to get season ticket holders to come to your games and renew their season tickets, right? Anyway, that's just my opinion. That's my two cents. Um, Let's move on to the next ownership issue. Yeah, I'm going to call it an ownership issue. Yeah. So the next thing we're talking about is Steve Cohen backing out of the deal. Mets fans scared. I am one of them, so I am scared. That's the title of this next next segment we're going to talk about. So I, I want to take a quick look at who the fuck Steve Cohen is, because... I know it's a perfect time right now because he's about to back out of the deal, but I know a lot of Mets fans don't really know who he is. He has a minority ownership in the team, uh, 4%. He wants to become a majority owner, and there was a deal in place to get him to over 50% so he could be the majority owner. Uh, I think in five years was the initial deal. The Wilpons have apparently changed that, but we'll, we'll see what comes of this deal. Apparently, it's on life support. Anyway, let's look real quick into Steve Cohen. Uh, he founded two hedge funds, 0.72 Asset Management, and the now-closed SAC Capital Investors. SAC, Steve, I think A. Cohen, uh, was his first hedge fund, which closed a few years ago after paying $1.8 billion in fines. Um, his insider trading was found out by the SEC. No charges were personally brought against Cohen, um, but it was against the firm. 0.72 is still running, and it's worth about $14 billion per Forbes. Uh, Cohen was also listed as the 94th most influential person in 2007, when he was also noted by The Guardian as the uh, I think it was stock trading king. I forgot to write it down, but he was a trading king. He trade a lot. <laughs> um, he's currently worth $13.6 billion uh, per Forbes as of 2019. Um, and continuing to read the Ricky article, it looks like Cohen has also uh, almost always been evolved, involved or around insider trading. Uh, when, he was, when he first graduated college, um, I think when he first graduated business school, he graduated at Wharton. 
Uh, he was involved in a uh, insider trading at the firm he worked at. He, no charges were ever brought against him again, but it's interesting to note as the MLB comes off of one of their cheating scandals, uh, Cohen has been noted to have cheated at uh, stock trading. It's <laughs> very interesting. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. It probably doesn't, but it's just something to note about, or uh, to talk about, to think about even. Uh, anyway, let's get back to uh, him trying to be the majority owner of the Mets. That's the most important thing, right? We know a little bit about Cohen, the insider trading thing. That's why people have called him a crook. He's worth $13.6 billion, which is a lot more than the Wilpons are. Uh, as you know, the Wilpons do own a majority of the Mets. They lost a lot of money and and at the hands of Bernie Madoff and the Murdoff's, uh, Madoff scandal. Uh, it, so Wilp, uh, the Wilpons getting out and Cohen buying that is probably good news, considering the Wilpons have been stingy, especially after losing all their money. Not all their money. They're still worth, I think, something like $300 million or, or a, a good amount of money still. Overall, I'm inclined to agree with most people, um, considering Cohen has at least $10 more billion than the Wilpons. He seems very interested in spending it on the team. He was going to organize a gala per ESPN for the opening of the season. Uh, so I guess all his rich friends. He also owns a lot of art, so we probably have all his sick, cool $300 million art there. Um, Again, getting to the meat of this, the change in ownership, I think, would have been fruitful for Met fans. We know a little bit about Steve Cohen. He seems like a sketchy guy a little bit, to be honest. But his $13.6 billion would be a welcome uh, amount of money, or a guy with that much money would be a welcome addition to the Mets ownership, considering the, the Wilpons have been stingy and been kind of crappy owners over the past few years. Um, okay, so that's it for all of the news and notes that I wanted to talk about. Um I mean, this is still news and notes stuff, but I want to talk about the Super Bowl, obviously. Um, I didn't do a preview show, but we're doing like an exit interview show, so let's get into it. We're now into the Super Bowl recap part of the show. All right, cool. Um, First thing is first, this was a way better game than 2019. Uh, It's just an obvious fact. There was more scoring, um, and the defense was a lot more fun to watch. So overall, just a better game on both sides of the the field. Uh, let's, let's start this shit with my, uh, my recap of how my bets did. Uh, I had Chiefs straight up, the Chiefs minus one and a half, and I had the over. I feel like the over should have hit. The freaking 49ers beat the Saints in a shootout, 48 to 46. They killed the Packers, put up 37 points against them. In the regular season, they beat the Rams, 34 points. After beating them earlier in the season, 20 points. They killed Carolina with 51 points. I just feel like they should have scored more. <laughs> I don't know. I guess this is a testament to how good the Chiefs defense played because they, they played better in the playoffs than I guess anyone should have expected them to play. But really, just like the second half of the season, they were on point after Mahomes came back. Uh, now, I wrote down some quick notes that I want to read to you. I watched the game during the Super Bowl, obviously, but it's kind of tough to really get a feel for the game when you're watching it like on TV with all the commercials that weren't hanging out during the Super Bowl show and all that stuff. So I rewatched it at NFL.com. I did the condensed version. I just want to share my notes real quick of what I saw, just as a reminder of a reflection going forward of the Super Bowl. Uh, I think people will forget how bad Mahomes looked early on in the game. God, he was bad at times. You have to thank the Chiefs defense for keeping them in the game for so long. The 49ers could have put up like 30 points easy by the time uh, Mahomes actually turned it on. Uh, Jimmy G didn't play up to the way I saw him in the NFL for much of the year. Uh, maybe blame Shanahan if you want, but then you got to give him props for how well the, uh, the 49ers did during the regular season and, and 
you know, not Jimmy, <laughs> rewatching this game, both teams earned all the points they, they got. They really earned them. If, if it, it wasn't a, a super spectacular game with spectacular plays, but they earned almost every one of the first downs and almost every one of their, uh, their scores. Uh, Mahomes is going to win so many championships if he doesn't get irreparably ja- damaged. I worry that, because I, I was rooting for the Chiefs, I worry that I may have rooted for the new annoying-as-fuck dynasty, the new, the new Patriots, possibly, with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. Um, I, one of the biggest things, I think this is something that everyone should remember from the Super Bowl, because it was, I guess, iconic, maybe? Um, I just don't know how Mahomes made that pick when he threw it right to the linebacker in the third, the third quarter. It's, it's so um, Mahomesy. He went the entire postseason without throwing a pick, but then threw it right to his opponent. And the second INT was behind Tyreek Hill, and it was still Mahomes' fault. He threw it into double coverage behind his wide receiver. That's that's on the quarterback. Um, I just <laughs> I don't know how the fuck the Chiefs uh, get to 31. There's seven minutes to go in the game. I wrote this down. There's seven minutes to go in the game, and it's in the fourth, and I don't know how the 49ers lose it. <laughs> and, and and then it finally happens. Uh, I... I one of my notes is I don't hate the play calls for the 49ers, i.e. the pass first run. I think the pass plays seem kind of silly. Like, I, I think the third down they ran, like, everyone ran a curl, and it was just covered up so well. Jimmy G didn't have anywhere to throw it. Um, I think we have to look at Mahomes, and his arm is pretty amazing, but his RPO, uh, I guess, n- is it knowledge of the RPO or his ability to run the RPO um, and just run the ball on op- any kind of option plays, just generally, not, not non-RPOs, was outstandingly effective. He was so effective at that. And I, I get he's a freak athlete, but his ability to read defenses and run and use the RPO to his advantage was unmistakably amazing. Uh, and you, you just can't say the same for Jimmy G and the 49ers. The collapse of the 49ers in the fourth is, is uncanny and maybe with a bit of bad luck. And I just can't describe how bad it was and how fast it happened, but... Mahomes earned a victory over them. Their defense couldn't hold out after Mahomes... God, after Mahomes got the second touchdown, it just felt like it was over. Because the 49ers weren't going to be able to do anything against the Chiefs' defense. And the 49ers' defense just got scolded. And Sherman had a pretty bad game, too, I think. Getting beat by Sammy Watkins deep is really bad for one of the best cornerbacks uh, in the game. And he was this year, for sure. So those are my random thoughts about the game itself. Um, I want to talk now about the implications. And we're going to first start with the 49ers. Starting with the losers, the Niners, um, let's get into it. Kyle Shanahan has presided over two horrific Super Bowl meltdowns against probably the two greatest quarterbacks of this age and the past age. It's a stain on his legacy, to be sure, but he's a 40-year-old genius with the 49ers who have plenty of young talent and a super coachable quarterback. I didn't find many of his play calls problematic, problematic for the team, even in the last 15 minutes, besides what I noted in the previous segment. This will hurt, obviously, but Shanny will be back. The 49ers uh, have some offseason decisions to make, and I'll save the big one for another segment. But they currently have $13 million in cap space, and the free agent list consists of the following. Emmanuel Sanders, he'll command a lot of money as a vet, probably too much fun to keep him. Uh, Jimmy Ward, uh, he expressed interest in coming back on a long-term deal, which I think is likely. Um, but it's entirely possible that he'll command too much money. The 49ers cannot sign him for more than 5 or $6 million. The big one is Eric Armstead, uh, the defensive end. He's going to get paid, and I don't think it's by the 49ers, unless they tag him, which is a possibility for sure. Um, Emmanuel Mosley, unsure about how much he will command on the open market, but I think he's a likely stay for the right price. Sheldon Day, ex-Jaguar, remember when they drafted him in 2016 as a fourth-round pick. Um, He's good line depth. I think he'll be brought back. Um, I, I feel like 
the 49ers are going to need to make some serious cuts because they're going to want to keep at least Ward, hopefully Armstead, Mosley, maybe Sanders on the right price, but I, I think Sanders will go somewhere for a lot more money. Uh, to create more room, they could cut Tevin Coleman or McKinnon. It's about $4 million in space for each. They can cut Godwin for about $34 million. And even if they want Juszczyk to come back, they should really try and restructure his deal because they could save about $5 million in space if they cut him. Uh, and if they really want to go younger, I know this is a little bit crazy. I'm sure no one's considering this, but it's entirely possible they can cut Joe Staley. Um, and that would save 10 k in cap room, but I think he'll likely... He'll likely play in the 49ers till he retires. <laughs> um, now, the, the last thing I want to bring up, which is the most controversial thing for sure, is a report, and I would call it speculation from some, you know, Twitter uh, journalists, and I guess, they're also regular journalists, um, that Jimmy G might be dealt. Uh, he was the one weak spot for sure in the Super Bowl, and the defense is ready to compete. Uh, so getting a veteran quarterback like you might see in the market, might be a good idea. I know it's tough, and, and trust me, personally, I know this, that it's tough to keep a defense around. The Seahawks are probably the team that did the best because they had guys on rookie deals and a rookie QB, but teams like the Broncos and the Jags and even the Bears from last year haven't been able to replicate, rep, excuse me, replicate how well their teams have done, you know, considering their de- how well their defense played in the years before, right? So keeping a defense together is pretty tough. So winning now is probably more paramount than anything else with quarterbacks like Brady, Rivers, and Breeze possibly hitting the market. The 49ers could go all in on a free agent and get rid of Jimmy G, get rid of his $24 million that they would save in cap space and sign one of these quarterbacks. I don't think they will. And I personally would never let Jimmy G go for a short-term solution. That just seems crazy to me. This is his first year as a full starter. And I thought he played well. And Shanahan is obviously able to coach him correctly and just really uh, super important in Jan Han's system, Jimmy G's perfect for it. I don't know why he would move on. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I think Jimmy G, I'm going to say Garoppolo. Jimmy G just sounds weird. Garoppolo uh, is a franchise quarterback in the mold of Kirk Cousins. Um, and with Shanahan being his keeper and being his play caller, I don't know why you would get rid of him for, for something that's possibly better. Uh, I think it's next to impossible to win anything with a bad quarterback. So if you think think or if the franchise really thinks that Jimmy G is a bad quarterback and they're paying him $26 million and they can save 24, then getting rid of him would be a good idea. But <laughs> I, I don't think any franchise worth its salt would do that, especially one that was so close to tasting the Super Bowl this year. A lot more to say about the Chiefs in terms of the legacy from this game because they won the championship, obviously. Uh, and Andy Reid, man, I just, <laughs> I feel... I'm not an Eagles fan or anything, I'm a Jaguars fan, but I, I feel so happy for Andy Reid. Um, he was so deserving to win a championship. I just could be happier for the guy. He had so much, so much success in Philly without getting a ring, and he finally got it. I He seems like such a nice dude, too, from all the quotes that I've heard about him. I, I love all the food quotes, all the food takes. He looks like a walrus. He seems like a funny guy. I've never had a problem with any Chiefs fans, so him winning, with Shady especially, is it, really nice. I like that a lot. Uh, Mahomes... Seems like he's been the best quarterback in the league. Maybe maybe you take Lamar over him for a while. And I was a bit skeptical of him coming into the year. I thought he would throw more interceptions. And even though he missed three games, I thought he would just be generally more erratic this year than he was last year. But, man, his arm strength isn't the only thing that show uh, that show people how, how good he is, right? And I talked about this a little bit before, but his decision-making, his RPO knowledge or ability to run the RPO is, is on point. With Rodgers, and he's way more athletic than me, he's going to have 
a longer time in the NFL with being athletic because he's not going to sit behind Brett Favre for three years. Um, I'm just really happy for both of them winning the ship, and I think this is hugely important for Andrew Reid's legacy. He's probably a lock for the Hall of Fame now, I would think, and it's entirely possible he wins more Super Bowls with Mahomes and the Chiefs. Um, yeah, so I also, during the game, I don't know if I tweeted it out or remember it, but I think I deleted it. Um, I thought Damian Williams should have won the uh, Super Bowl MVP, but rewatching the game, it was obvious Mahomes should have won it. I was looking probably more at the stat sheet and the end of the game where, where Damian Williams closed it out, but Mahomes, Mahomes won the game, and he deserved the MVP. I'm going to say it again as well. I hope the Chiefs don't become a dynasty that people love to hate because they have a young quarterback who's so good, and they have a really good coach. This <laughs> has weird feelings of becoming a Patriots S dynasty, and I don't want that in the AFC again, personally. But this is a great start for Mahomes in what I assume is going to be a very fruitful career especially considering he was so close to the Super Bowl last year too, right? Um, I just don't want them to become the new Patriots. As much as I don't dislike the Patriots, living in New York and my mom being a Jets fan, and I used to be a Jets fan, it, it's hard for me to really like the Patriots. And no no one likes a team that gets rid of parity. I, I also love parity. Parity is the best part about anything in sports. You, you don't want dynasties that last too long. I, I could go with like a short Seahawks dynasty. That'd be really cool. But I don't like seeing long ones. It's not good for the game. It's not healthy, I don't think. Um, anyway, um... I've always been a defense wins championship kind of guy, and the Chiefs defense did a hell of a job stopping the 49ers, but I wonder if the old adage, defense wins championships, just isn't really a thing anymore, because I don't know how you stop Patrick Mahomes with a good coach. I just don't know how you do it. It it, it doesn't seem like he's human, and I haven't seen any teams really be able to slow him down or stop him. You just have to keep up with him, I guess, right? But with the defense playing like the Chiefs defense did, it's impossible to beat a young quarterback on a rookie deal when they have when they can sign guys like Frank Clark for $23 million a year. Um, and I'm really not trying to underplay how well the defense, uh, the Chiefs defense, played against the 49ers. Again, they, they stopped uh, the 49ers' offense from scoring more than 20 points, and only three teams were able to do that this year. And there was one team, the Falcons, when they beat them, uh, I think it was 29-22, to 22, they only let them score 22 points. But when the Niners are putting up 51 points against Carolina, 48 against the Saints, 31 against the Packers, 30 against the Rams... And the Rams have a good defense. Please don't at me. Um, you've got to give some credit to the defense. You've got to give a lot of credit to the defense. But the defense obviously wasn't able to win it until... Because with seven minutes left to go in the game, it was 20-7. to seven. Mahomes won the game. He scored 30... Oh, fuck. 24 answer points? Right? The defense didn't do that. It might, it might have slowed them down for most of the game, but Mahomes won it. It's just... I, it's it's shocking, and and it's obviously, like I talked before, so much easier to keep a quarterback in uh, on a franchise than it is to keep an entire defense together just by the sheer number of players you have to keep together and paying them all, right? It's interesting to know defense might not win championships anymore, and I think people might have known that for a while, and I'm just catching up, but it is dawning on me more and more. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's get to the offseason and what the Chiefs are going to do. Uh, the Chiefs probably can and will cut Sammy Watkins to save $14 million or renegotiate his deal because he's obviously not worth that when the Chiefs only have $13 million in cap space right now. Uh, they have, the Chiefs also have 24 players going to free agency, which include the Super Bowl starters of Chris Jones, Rashad Breeland, Reggie Ragland, Steve Wisniewski, and uh, all of the above guys, or all of the guys that I just talked about, should, should be signed. Um, my speculation is that Jones will test the open market, but Breeland can be brought back for a pretty fair price, I think. Wisniewski, also a very fair price, likely a million to two million dollars, and he's great O-line depth. There's also the question of Shady McCoy. Excuse me. Kendall Fuller is also an option that they can bring back. 
But I feel as though these big names aren't as worth it because they'll be commanding more money just because they have big names. Kendall Fuller really needs a new change of scenery. He was so good two years ago, or three years ago. He was good some number of years ago and has been very bad <laughs> the past few years. Um, it'll be interesting to note to see how this team looks next year with 24 players possibly leaving for agency. Okay, so yeah, that's all I have for you regarding the Super Bowl recap, and that's all I have for the podcast. The Chiefs, we'll see how they do in the offseason. It's a long offseason, but we also have the Combine, I think in February, on February 24th or something like that. So, you know, we only have a few weeks of, of downtime before we really need to get back into it. But anyway, that's all I have for you this week. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at ESS. E-J-T-H-E-S-L, or just search like Bacon Games uh, Fantasy Sports on Twitter. You can check out the website at BaconGamesFantasySports.com. Um, just continue to listen to the podcast because I got cool things to say and I think smart things to say, non-reactionary things to say. Um, yeah. Uh, hopefully have another episode tomorrow or Saturday regarding the Mookie Betts deal, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But look, look for it in your queue. Uh, in the next few days. Okay. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, have a good day. That's it for this episode of the Bacon Game Sports Pod. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And follow Jesse on Twitter at E S S E J T H E S L.